You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. China wins support from Asia-Pacific leaders for its roadmap to a new free trade area. Alibaba rakes in more than 9 billion U.S. dollars on Singles Day and U.S. equities extend all-time highs with a fifth day of advances. Foreign investors will gain access to more than 180 consumer-related companies in Shanghai when the link starts on November 17th. That makes it easier for them to add exposure to the part of China's economy that Morgan Stanley estimates has grown to 47% of gross domestic product. Why is this so significant for Hong Kong and for stock trading in general? We'll be discussing that today on Money for Nothing with Ronald R. Cully, former chairman of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. That's after a look at the markets with Michael Kurtz of Nomura Securities. And finally, Tai Hui of J.P. Morgan Asset Management will tell us why the wealthy are holding on to cash. Stuart Allcroft joins us this morning as co-host. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So lots to discuss ahead of the stock. It's going to be a busy launch. morning, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Let's look at uh, today's top stories first, though. Uh, U.S. stock indices uh, held at record highs as the yen slipped to a seven-year low against the U.S. dollar, and Brent crude oil sank to its lowest level since 2010. The Dow rose little change to 17,614, a record close. The S&P 500 gained 0.1 percent to 2,039, also a new record, and the. NASDAQ added 0.2% to 4,660. Volume was light due to the U.S. Veterans Day holiday. European stocks rose amid better-than-estimated earnings. The S&P 500 has rallied more than 9% from a six-month low in October, buoyed by supportive economic data and solid corporate earnings reports. For the year so far, the index is up 10.4%. Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute President Abby Joseph Cohn says that 12 months from now, the S&P 500 could hit 2150. The view basically is determined by the outlook for the economy, growing at 3%, S&P earnings increasing at high single digit, and the stock market will move accordingly. So 12 months from now, S&P 500, 2150, fair value, could move higher based upon all of the inflows we're seeing from non-U.S. investors. One of the reasons is a better U.S. fiscal deficit. Clearly, the fiscal deficit has improved from a cyclical standpoint. We see it in terms of the spending reductions. We no longer need as much stimulus spending, Mm -hmm. but also because the economy has gotten so much bigger. Profits have increased, income has increased for many families, and taxes are higher. So what we really look at is the deficit as a percentage of GDP. It was double-digit during the recession. It's now down to 25 to 3%. And then, of course, there were the U.S. midterm elections. The question is, will the Republicans be able to get along with the Democrats? Here's what the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget President Maya McGuinness says. 
I think there's a lot of tensions that we're going to see play out both in this lame duck, which is the next month, and then in the first six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's going to be tensions between the president and the Republicans, the new Republican majority, for sure. But there's also tensions within the Republican Party. So you have those that want to govern. The leaders, Boehner and uh, McConnell, have made it very clear that they mm-hmm. want to get small ball things done at least. But you have other people who still want to sort of throw some sand in the wheels, who are, are still talking about potential tough ball tactics. And so the Republicans are going to have to work out a lot of internal issues. Alibaba has said that it is open to working with eBay's PayPal to expand payment options after shoppers bought a record 57.1 billion yuan. That's 9.3 billion U.S. dollars of goods during the Chinese company's annual Singles Day promotion. And not just that, Alibaba also appears to be willing to work with Apple's payment system when customers find that its own Alipay is not accepted. Now, Singles Day, of course, was yesterday, and the shopping day is similar to Cyber Monday and Black Friday in the United States. And it comes less than eight weeks after Alibaba's record $25 billion U.S. dollar IPO. Leaders of the Asia-Pacific economies have drafted a roadmap for greater economic integration and partnership in the Asia-Pacific region. Priscilla Ng reports from Beijing. The host of the conference, President Xi Jinping, said that could be achieved by boosting regional connectivity, deepening reforms, developing global value chains, and by further developing their innovation sectors. China and the United States announced an agreement to reduce tariffs for technology products. President Obama said that when the U.S. and China are able to work together effectively, the whole world benefits. But it's more complicated than that. Mr. Xi won uh, (laughs) approval to study the creation of a China-led free trade zone that would be an alternative to Mr. Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership, a 12-nation trading bloc that excludes China. This, of course, would give Beijing a victory in its push for a bigger role in managing global commerce. The APEC leaders also endorsed a blueprint to develop a free trade area in the Asia-Pacific region, something President Xi described as a historical step forward. All right, let's bring in Michael Kurtz, who is the Asia Equity Strategist for Nomura Securities. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, the APEC news is not necessarily the best for the U.S., or, or you know, but it is, is it a win for China, uh, especially given the concern that everybody has about slumping growth? Well, I think it begs the question of time horizons. I mean, China is setting its sights on a, on a longer-term objective of a regional free trade pact uh, might be uh, nice on paper, but I don't really expect there to be much practical progress in the near term. And indeed, even the U.S. Uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership is, has hit a number of stumbles over the past year, not least in the U.S. itself, where Congress hasn't exactly been foursquare behind the idea um, and uh, particularly the president's own party, which tends to have the, the closer ties to the unions. So net-net, I would say there's an awful lot of uh, grandstanding and uh, sort of macro position-taking here. But the reality is free trade in Asia has been a very difficult agenda because every economy has their own uh, pet uh, constituencies and, and uh, pet sectors that they seem unwilling to, to genuinely expose to, to full competition from abroad. And I think that's likely to remain the case for quite some time. But, Michael, is it, is it efficient to have sort of two free trade agreements, the, the TPP as well as the one that China is proposing? Is that not well, overkill? 
I don't know uh, that we even need to uh, confine the conversation to just those two. The, the fact is that free trade is what we like to call a spaghetti bowl. There are uh, there are far more than just two what we might call competing free trade visions uh, at play in Asia. There's the uh, ASEAN free trade area, for example. There's a, a, a broad network of bilateral free trade agreements that have been put in place over the years, including, of course, just this week, the announcement that Korea and China are on the verge of a bilateral free trade agreement themselves. When you bring all this together, it's just an absolute uh, and, and almost, uh, you know, unfathomable uh, complexity of, of agreements. Certainly, though, what we can say is, regardless of who's at the center of the, uh, of the objective, that uh, a gradual reduction of tariffs is ultimately good for competitive pressures and therefore a, a spur for greater economic efficiency around the region. And in that sense, I don't think it's a big issue as to which country is driving the process forward. Michael Stewart here. Um, there seem to be lots of free trade agreements, as you just said, but is it because everyone wants to participate with everybody else? So everyone wants China in an agreement, everyone wants the US in, a, in a, an agreement. I, I think most people want India in an agreement. So how do we get those three together in a single agreement? Is that the big question? Well, of course, there is uh, APEC as a potentially unifying or uh, delineating um, uh, body right now. And I think APEC is probably the, the forum within which that objective might be most uh, logically pursued over the longer term. But as, as I say, at the end of the day, every country uh, ultimately benefits from the reduction of trade barriers and uh, getting everybody on the same page in terms of joining the same one agreement at this point, I would say, is already looking like a pipe dream, so we have to take it in bits and pieces as it comes. So, sure, I mean, APEC probably should have uh, the, the leadership position here, but it seems not to want to take it. Uh, that's fine, but uh, I, as I say, I'm not certain that it's really realistic at this point to envision a single unifying trade agreement across the region, so uh, it's a discussion about uh, an impossibility. Okay, Michael, uh, let's uh, focus on the other big news sort of, of the week, if you will, and that's the uh, Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. Now, according to Bloomberg, more than half of the 17 Shanghai stocks eligible for the program with unanimous buy ratings are in consumer industries. So for the international investors wondering which stocks to buy through the link, the message from Chinese analysts appears to be quite clear, uh, which is, you know, pile into consumer shares and avoid raw materials companies. Do you agree with this? We largely do, yeah. And I would include the auto names in amongst the consumer shares in particular. Those, that's a sector that we've been highlighting. Um, the materials names, I think one can make a very good case against them, uh, irrespective of the mechanics of the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect program, which is simply that we're in a global environment right now in which this combination of dollar strength and the outlook for Chinese uh, growth to continue to moderate over a multi-quarter or even multi-year time horizon are both essentially pulling the carpet out from underneath global material and commodity prices and uh, leaving that sector looking at risk of a sustained problem of overcapacity. So we would certainly agree with the uh, avoidance of the materials stocks in particular. And besides consumer, sort of any other areas that you'd focus on? Well, it depends on how broadly one defines consumer. We do think that some of the Chinese tech names that are listed in uh, in Hong Kong uh, are probably also uh, decent plays in the context of the flows that are expected to come across the border.
All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Kurtz, uh, Chief Asia Equity Strategist at Nomura Securities. And uh, for further discussion now on the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect, let's bring in Ronald R. Cully, who is the senior partner, uh, a senior partner at King and Wood Mallisons. And he is also the former chairman of the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited. Good morning, Ronald. Good morning, Ray. How are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. So uh, this certainly is the big news this week. Uh, and, you know, we have to ask you right up front, uh, the Stock Connect, what does this mean for Hong Kong as a financial trading center? I think it, it does mean that, you know, the role that we have as the super connector uh, between mainland China and the rest of the world um, with, you know, trade flows, uh, capital flows both ways uh, is is really you know um, taking on a different dimension. Um, so you know we've been you know, obviously working you know on this um, for a number of uh, months and in fact you can say years. Uh, but you know, eventually uh, this uh, is going to come to fruition. You know, come the seventeenth uh, of this month. Um, I think also the important uh, sort of long-term strategic uh, direction is that all of us know uh, that mainland China's policy is really to, at some stage or other, make sure that the renminbi is fully convertible, uh, make sure that the capital accounts uh, are you know, open and free uh, in due course. Uh, but of course, all this <coughs> excuse me takes takes a little time. It's it's not going to happen overnight or, you know, when you throw a switch and, hey, presto, you know, you're there. Stuart here, Ronald. Um, Hi, there's been a lot of uh, enthusiasm, obviously, from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange for this development. It's been, you know, really um, impressive how enthusiastic. But is the same enthusiastic uh, behavior occurring in China by the Shanghai Stock Exchange? Do they have the same views as Hong Kong? Um, I imagine they would, because I think, as I said, you know, the important thing is really the two-way flow. And and I think um, you remember some years ago, Stuart, that you know, there was talk about Shanghai having an international board. Oh, indeed, yes. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, somehow or other, you know, that didn't get off the ground. Mm. But, you know, by having the uh, Stock Connect uh, mechanism between Shanghai and Hong Kong, um, mainland investors will be able to access... Uh, through the Hong Kong exchange, um, you know, uh, um, different sort of uh, listed uh, entities that we have here, uh, which are not available otherwise uh, than through um, either ETFs or uh, um, uh, 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 sort of Q, you know, uh, QDII type sort of vehicles. Mm. Uh, so I from, from their mm. perspective, you know, clearly, again, it also opens up Shanghai, you know, to the rest of the world. Uh, via Hong Kong again, so I think I think this is you know, in some ways it's kind of experiment. It's definitely experimental, uh, but hopefully you know that you know those those involved uh, have you know cleared all the technicalities, the regulatories, uh, hurdles, etc., and all that, and I hope that they will you know operate smoothly. 
Yeah, and I guess that, I mean, we, we still hear, we heard this week from Charles Lee that he's still waiting to make an announcement as far as tax is concerned. That's an issue that all international investors are concerned about with China. There are a few minor administrative matters, particularly from um, global investors with um, Luxembourg or Dublin-based mutual funds. But, but it's also the South way, because it's got to be a two-way trade, hasn't it? And, uh, and, and we haven't yet heard whether or not there are a lot of Chinese institutions who are likely to buy into Hong Kong. Do you think they will? Um, I, I imagine they will, because I think when you look at, um, let's say, uh, just to look at one sector, pension funds or insurance companies that uh, you know, would like to diversify um, out of your know, purely a ribbon B uh, sort of based economy, i.e. mainland Chinese economy, access to the market here uh, will give them that opportunity. So, so I think, as I say, hopefully, you know, this is only the only the beginning, you know, of a, of a, of a greater access to um, you know more. And you know, right now there are obviously daily quotas, and there are you know uh, total limit uh, numbers in terms of uh, the two-way traffic going on. But at some stage or other, you know, that can be either uh, increased or you know the range of uh, product availability. Yeah. Open up. Uh, presumably, though, if we do see a lot of southbound uh, money coming, that's also going to encourage international corporations to get their listing on the Hong Kong exchange, would you believe? Yes, I, I, well, that's a very good point, Stuart. And, and also, you know, I've always held the view that um, I'm probably in the minority uh, in the sense that international companies uh, that have businesses in Asia uh, gain a lot by having a listing in Hong Kong. You're not just you know, access to the capital markets uh, that you know, Hong Kong represents uh, through the Asian uh, sort of network, uh, but also in terms of you know, uh, individual investors. And, and don't forget that at the retail side, Asia is still quite strong generally on retail, on retail investors, unlike you know, the more uh, developed markets in the US or in Europe where it's more institutionalized. Ronald, yeah. one, one quick question uh, sort of before we wrap up the segment. Of course, Hong Kong is one of the world's leading financial centers. Shanghai also a very important financial center. Uh, you know, the Stock Connect makes sense given geographical proximity and the fact that these are both financial centers of, you know, the larger, if you will, Chinese economy. Uh, the question is, will we see more partnerships like this elsewhere in the years to come? Um, I won't be surprised if it does happen. I mean, I was in fact going to sort of, you know, make the last point that, you know, Hong Kong Exchange is also the owner today of the London Metals Exchange, uh, you know, which trades 80% of the world's non-ferrous metal trading uh, takes place there. And China is probably the largest consumer of something over 40% uh, of, of those products. So I think Quite possibly, the next step would really be to open up, you know, the commodities market uh, to the professional traders uh, that do trade, in fact, on the LME today. Uh, but you know, they'll be able to trade in renminbi and hopefully in an Asian time zone. All right. So, so I think you know there are there are great possibilities. Good to hear. All right. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. Thank that you is very much. Thank you. 
Ronald Alkali, former chairman of Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up seven-tenth of a percent to 17,250. Australia's ASX is down half a percent to 5,468. And Seoul's Kospi is up just a tad to 1,965. In currencies, one euro buys you 1.24 US dollar. Uh, one US dollar is currently worth 115 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12.34 Hong Kong dollars. Brent crude oil is down to $81.67 and gold is at $1,161.80 per ounce. All right, well, we'll be back to talk more about why the wealthy are holding on to cash. That's right after this message. The management of private property is the responsibility of the owners. The Building Management Ordinance provides a legal framework for owners to form owners' corporations to jointly manage the common parts of their property. The government is conducting a consultation to review the ordinance. Copies of the consultation paper are available at public inquiry service centers of district offices or the Home Affairs Department Building Management website. Please submit your views by February 2nd, 2015. in life are free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money The time is now 8.23 a.m. and today's wealthy investors appear to have split personalities. Show, uh, surveys are showing on that on one hand, they are back to pre-crisis boom years when it comes to their outlook for their own investments and their retirement. But then when it comes to their outlook on the broader economy or in stock markets specifically, they appear to take a dimmer view. So let's bring in Tai Hui, who is the chief market strategist of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And let's ask him for for his take. Good morning, Ty. Good morning. So, Ty, why are today's wealthy folks uh, so split across, you know, whether, you know, being bulls or bears? I mean, which is it? <laughs> well, I think the 2008 global financial crisis clearly had a huge part in uh, shaping investors' expectations right now. If you look at uh, the investment trend for the last three to five years, not only cash, but some of the fixed income, more stable investment has been the preferred asset class for many investors. So, um, how much cash do we know that the wealthy are actually holding? The wealthy here in Hong Kong, in this region, or in the Asia-Pacific, do we know? Well, the Securities and Future Commission have actually done some surveys, and this is not just the wealthy, but in general. The financial asset class breakdown for Hong Kong you know, people in general is that 45% are held in cash, about 30% in equities, and then the rest in equity funds, sorry, mutual funds or fixed income. So certainly, uh, you know, 45% is a very high number by Asian standard, and certainly a lot higher compared with some of the other developed markets, such as the US, Europe, or the UK. But is cash a wise investment? I mean, can it even be considered an investment? Uh, for example, if you spread it across your portfolio in different currencies. Well, cash, in my view, is certainly not a great investment at the time of uh, well, relative growth in the economy. Uh, we have, we've actually done a lot of studies on the performance of different asset classes. And one thing we found is that cash typically underperforms a, a diversified portfolio of bonds and equities, except in extreme times such as 2008 or 2011. And in the case of Hong Kong, uh, bank deposit rates is close to zero. And meanwhile, we are facing 2 to 3% inflation. So the reality is that by doing nothing or holding cash, 
uh, depositors or investors are practically losing to inflation right now. Stuart, would love uh, you uh, to sort of give us your thoughts on this. Yeah, sure. I mean, in the US or in um, Europe and many other places, a lot of the cash holdings by investors is actually held through money market funds. We have almost no money market funds in Hong Kong and Asia. Do you think that's a reason why the cash is still cash as opposed to in the funds industry? Well, I think what happened in 2008 with the Lehman mini bond crisis, etc., etc., I think it did give uh, investors a lot more food for thought when it comes to different types of investment vehicles. And therefore, uh, you know, if you're just generating 2 to 3%, and that's probably not attractive enough for investors to park them in money market funds or such likes. Mm, sure, but I mean, we've seen a massive flow of money into income-producing funds, high-yield and income-producing funds. And, and if you've got money market funds, I mean, you, as we saw with Yu Bao in China, they were able to offer a return that was about 2% higher than, than could be had on a deposit account. So you know, it's that sort of thing that is clearly attractive to investors. We've definitely seen a huge amount of interest in income-themed products, whether it's in fixed income or increasingly in moving into uh, high dividend equities or REITs or convertible bonds. Mm. So definitely because of you know, what we just discussed with the negative real interest rates environment, that's not going to change anytime soon, uh, I still expect a great deal of demand in income theme products. And it's not just limited to Hong Kong. Uh, it's the same in Taiwan, in Korea, in Singapore. Yeah. We still have this problem, though, in Hong Kong that I think the latest statistic is that only about 6% of the population, or maybe 10% of the adult population, has bought a fund. So it's still that sort of fear factor in place, isn't it? Well, I, th- I certainly think that uh, sometimes the, uh, the positioning, the explanation of the funds, the performance of the funds are clearly areas where investors are weary. A- at the same time, if you look at a lot of retail investors, they'd like to get their hands dirty. They'd like mm-hmm. to, to trade the market. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, surrender rendering that that uh, rights to trade to expert fund managers, that's not something that everyone's used to. Hmm. So uh, this is an interesting point you bring up because I think there are debates for and against. I mean, many people will say, yes, well, when it comes to the wealthy becoming wealthier and retail investors wanting to invest, many of them are actually afraid to get their hands dirty in case they do something wrong. So they actually might prefer to invest in funds. Do you not agree with that? I do think that some funds are able to provide uh, a respectable return but yet managed to provide also some degree of stability. Obviously, not as stable as cash, but at the end of the day, the, uh, the more risk you take, the better reward you should expect to get. So in a high inflation, low interest rate environment, I do think investors should dabble into some risks, but it doesn't mean that you should be or go all the way 100% into equities or high-risk assets. A well-diversified portfolio certainly can provide investors with a decent return, but actually still manage to... Uh, provide some degree of stability to the overall asset portfolio. So with the upcoming uh, Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect program, uh, will this provide an opportunity you know, to, for retail investors to get their hands dirtier, <laughs> as you well, say, through the Chinese stock market? Absolutely. I think obviously this opens up a new uh, avenue to uh, investors to invest in China. Many of them have invested via the uh, QFII or our QF scheme, but this is typically done via uh, the fund industry. But now they can directly participate participate into the Chinese markets. But obviously, in the Chinese market, there are plenty of differences compared with uh, Hong Kong or, or some of the overseas markets. So I think the important message here is to do the homework. And risks, 
too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Tai Hui, who is the Chief Market Strategist uh, for Asia for JP Morgan Asset Management. All right, Stuart. So we have just a few moments left uh, before we wrap up the show. Your closing thoughts on well, today and what we should be looking out for. I was interested in that uh, piece you played of Abby Joseph Cohen because she's talking about uh, S&P going up to 2150, which in fact is only about 5% from today. And I think that's a pretty low ball um, estimate, frankly. Uh, uh, the market in the US is looking very positive at the moment. The Japanese market is looking very good. And with the lowering of the yen, that's going to be very good for manufacturing in Japan, which will produce bigger profits. So you're looking at way above 2150. Uh, indeed I am. Oh, good news. <laughs> good news to part with. Yeah, well, uh, we've got to try something positive, right? <laughs> course. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as guest host. That is Stuart Altcroft of City Trust. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is up 1% to 17,309. Australia's ASX index up, uh, down, excuse me, six-tenths of a percent to 5,460. And Sills Cosby down a tad to 1,961. This is Renita Malhotra Hora signing off for Money for Nothing. And a quick look at the weather forecast for today. Today, it'll be cloudy with one or two light rain patches at first. The maximum temperature will be about 24 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 23 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 85%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Todd Harding. The United States and China are planning to announce military pacts aimed at reducing the possibility of confrontation between the two powers. President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Barack Obama are to unveil these plans later today. Priscilla Ung reports from Beijing. According to the Wall Street Journal, the two countries are planning uh, to announce military agreements aimed at reducing the possibility of confrontation between the two powers, which uh, includes establishing a mechanism for notifying the two countries of each other's activities, including military exercises. Uh, They are also expected to discuss cyber spying and maritime disputes. Some of the blockades put up by pro-democracy protesters may be removed by police as early as tomorrow. Sources say 7,000 police officers are prepared to take part in a major clearance operation to help bailiffs enforce court injunctions ordering protesters off designated streets in Mongkok and Admiralty. However, the sources add there are no plans to drive everyone off the streets, only the areas specified in the injunctions will be cleared. E-commerce giant Ali